0: Many Christians are disappointed, even surprised, that their life is not changing, that they are not growing into holiness. But that shouldn't surprise them, because it's really their own fault. If you are saved, and you are not growing in holiness, it is only because you have neglected to cultivate your field of character.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible-teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been looking at the meaning of entanglement as it relates to sin in the life of believers. It's part of our study of the second chapter of 2 Timothy. In this chapter's first few verses, the Apostle Paul encourages Timothy to persevere as a soldier or as an athlete and to take care not to become entangled in sin. As we rejoin Pastor Brogy, let's take a look at how best we can keep from becoming entangled in sin.
0: Can you say this morning that there is no unconfessed, no unrepented sin in my life? You had better learn to treat sin as sin would treat you. You must be merciless with sin because sin will be merciless merciless with you. Do you remember what our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount? He taught us how to keep from being entangled in sin. Let me pick it up in verse 27 so you can get the flow. You've heard that it was said, Matthew 5, 27, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, on the surface, it seems rather dramatic to pluck out an eye or to cut off a hand, but Jesus wants us to treat sin as sin would treat us. Now unfortunately there have been Christian people through the centuries whose zeal have exceeded their wisdom. Origin of Alexander for instance literally in the hope of living a purer life plucked out his right eye. But these dramatic figures of speech that our Lord uses do not speak of mutilation they speak of mortification. They speak of dying to self. If you pluck out the right eye, you still have the left eye to contend with. If you cut off the right hand, you still have the left hand in which to execute the temptation. Jesus is simply teaching that the eye cannot be the inlet into sin, and the hand cannot be the executor of the temptation, and so you must deal with them ruthlessly. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. That is to say, don't look at it. Don't focus on the temptation. If you are to deal with temptation, sometimes in the the spiritual realm, you must act in the physical realm as a blind man would. You must choose not to look at it. You must choose not to see it. And if your hand or your foot, which Jesus will add in Matthew chapter 18 in dealing with different kinds of temptation there, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin because temptation certainly can come through the hands by the things that you do and temptation certainly can come through the feet by the places that you visit, then don't do it. Don't go there. Live as if you had no hands. Live as if you had no feet. In other words, you are not to feed your lower sinful nature. The exact same counsel was put in one verse in Paul's words in Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, that is the sin nature, in regards to its loss. Of course, if all a person ever does, as Galatians 5 affirms, if all they ever do is feed the lower nature, if that is the pattern of their life, then they have strong and certain assurance that they've never had a birth from above. But understand, in reference to God's people, the curse at the start of this new millennium is half-hearted Christianity. And casual, half-hearted devotion to Jesus Christ is an insult to God. Unfortunately, many Christians, all have yielded to sin. They've made peace with sin. They've come to the place where they said, well, no one is perfect. Everybody has their own little problem, his own little pet sin, and I've just chosen to, to live with mine. And that's the tragedy of our day, the sin that so easily entangles us. Peter says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I am so thankful to Dr. Bill Bright for the personal encouragement he gave me in my early years and challenging me and calling me to live holy. That's what marked that man's life. And that's why God was able to use him. And that's the kind of determination that Jesus Christ is calling for, that Peter writes about, that the writer to the Hebrews mentions when he asks us to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us and that Paul in our text of Scripture refers to when he says you must run according to the rules. You cannot make peace with the entanglements of this life because your sin will trip you up. You cannot hold to the encumbrances of this world because the world will weigh you down. No, very often the only difference between a sincere, devoted, godly, happy, joyous, spirit-filled Christian and a defeated, weak, and struggling Christian is whether or not they are willing, like an athlete, to run according to the rules. Again, you had better treat sin as sin will treat you. Sin will be merciless with you. You had better be merciless with sin. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. And so if you are to run the race, well, you're to run it lawfully. If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So the first illustration from the law-abiding athlete, the first principle I learned is that the law-abiding athlete keeps the rules. Secondly, I learned the law-abiding athlete wins the prize. When you live your life God's way, when you compete according to the rules, in the end you win. Paul is reminding Timothy that rewards for service depend upon faithfulness. And so for the pastor, especially in the context of 2 Timothy 2.2, he must be willing to teach the whole counsel of God. He must be willing to take the deposit, the treasure, the gospel, the things that you've heard from me, and in turn entrust them to the next generation. And together, we are to use good building materials that when at the judgment seat of Christ and the Lord does an analysis of our Christian life, it might not go up in smoke. Only if, like Paul, Timothy preserves to the end, if he, too, fights the good fight, if he, too, keeps the faith, only then can he and those of us who live in these days expect to receive the crown of righteousness. Now, don't ever forget that the race is not determined... Until you come to the end. One of the great dangers of running this thing we call the Christian life, this thing we call the Christian ministry, is that in our early years we can serve the Lord well, even through our middle years, and then we can putter out towards the end. You cannot gloat in past laurels, not if you want the crown of righteousness. And again, Dr. Bright comes to my mind, where he suffered so great with this disease, and yet, as long as he could, right down to the last week of his life, he asked God for every breath to continue to serve him. Now, I hear a lot of testimonies today of how people entered the race, and those are heartwarming, and I'm glad to hear how you became a Christian. But the real testimony comes at the end of your life. Whether you finished the race, whether you competed according to the rules, So the apostle in our passage this morning wants us to run according to the rules because he knows that decisions demand discipline, that service involves sacrifice, that privilege involves a price, and that commitment demands a cost. Now, having given the illustration of the dedicated soldier and the law-abiding athlete, he now comes to the illustration of the hard-working farmer. Look at verse 6. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. If the soldier must suffer, if the athlete must play fair, the, the farmer must toil, he must work hard. Now the Greek word here translated hard-working, kopianta, literally means to toil to the point of exhaustion. Hard work is a key component of good farming. Even in our day of mechanization, good farming depends as much on sweat as it does on skill. And unlike the soldier who may come back victorious to the cheering crowds from the battle, unlike the athlete who may enter the arena to the applause of the people, the farmer has no such excitement or applause. And a whole lot of the Christian life is like that no one applauding you, no one giving you a -a that-a-boy, good-job kind of thing, but like a hard-working farmer toiling. And so he is the first to get his share of the crop because he deserves it. And the good yield that he deserves is as much due to his hard work as it is to anything else. That's why the book of Proverbs over and over and over again tells us that a slugger doesn't make a good farmer. And he's not just teaching us about farmers, about farming, he's teaching us about principles of life. In Proverbs 10, Solomon says, He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Proverbs 24, the sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. Proverbs 24, He gives that little parable. I passed by the field of the sluggard, and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. Behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it, I looked and I received instruction a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber, and your want like an armed man. That's why lazy people are never successful in farming. And that's why some lazy Christians, some even lazy pastors, are never successful in ministry. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Now we need to ask a question here. What kind of harvest does a hardworking farmer receive? Well, let me suggest two dimensions of his harvest, allowing Scripture to interpret itself, allowing Scripture to speak for itself. First, I think it's important to remember that the hardworking farmer has a harvest of holiness. If you're a hardworking farmer, you will have a harvest of holiness. Now, while it is true that God is the one who causes the growth, while it is true, that this is described as the fruit, the work of the Spirit in our lives, we must never forget that we play a very important role. We are commanded in Scripture to grieve not the Spirit, to quench not the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to sow to the Spirit. And so if we are to reap a harvest of holiness, we cannot grieve the Spirit of God by allowing unconfessed, unrepented sin in our lives to linger. Nor can we quench the Holy Spirit by being unwilling and unavailable to carry out the positive commands of Scripture. Nor can we expect a harvest of holiness, lest we walk by the Spirit moment by moment, every step we take, in the same way as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. You came by faith in absolute, total dependence upon Him, admitting your bankruptcy, admitting your absolute need. Even so, we must walk by the Spirit spirit moment by moment and if we are to reap our harvest of holiness we must sow to the spirit by feeding upon the word of god and following his promptings now if i might digress for just a moment most of us know galatians 5 and the fruit of the spirit that is mentioned but we very often do not go on to galatians 6 where we see of our responsibility to sow the spirit the Holy Spirit does not produce His fruit in a vacuum. He does not produce His fruit in our lives simply by His own activity without any cooperation from us. We have to do some sowing. And we must sow, of course, in a clean heart with the Word of God if the Word of God is to take root. Some of us, we go and we read our chapter a day to keep the devil away. But our life is not changed Because we're sowing truth in a dirty heart. You cannot sow truth and at the same time sow the filth of the world and expect a harvest of holiness. We will only reap from the Spirit if we sow to the Spirit. So the harvest depends as much on our sowing as it does on the reaping that the Spirit brings. Yet many Christians are disappointed, even surprised, that their life is not changing, that they are not growing into holiness. But that shouldn't surprise them because it's really their own fault. If you are saved and you're not growing in holiness, it is only because you have neglected to cultivate your field of character. What you reap depends upon what you sow. Now listen to your pastor this morning. If The law of God is whatever you sow, that shall you reap. Then it is true where there is no pain, there is no gain. You must discipline yourself for holiness. A farmer cannot expect the seed to prosper just by putting it in the ground. He must nurture it, weed it, feed it, water it. If it has produced a harvest, neither can you expect to grow to be a healthy, holy Christian if you are not diligent to feed upon the word of God every single day, unless you are faithful to get alone with God in prayer, unless you are faithful to honor the Lord's day and to serve God's people. Not to mention a lot of us. We're not reaping a harvest of holiness because we're pouring acid all over the plants by the kinds of things that we watch and listen to. Our God is a God of means. And God will not bless a Christian who does not sow in a clean heart. It is the hard-working farmer who receives the first share of his crops. So first, he reaps a harvest of holiness. Secondly, the harvest is that of a harvest of souls. A hardworking farmer also has a harvest of souls. The winning of souls, that's a harvest too. Jesus reminded us that there are many, many. Let that reverberate deep into your mind today. There are many people who are wanting to hear the gospel and to receive Christ. The disciples walked right past that Samaritan woman that day. They didn't witness to her because they didn't think they should speak to Samaritans, to half-breeds. They're shocked when our Lord did. He won her to the Savior. She went back, shared her testimony with the whole town. When the whole town comes in those white robes of the day, Jesus turns a spiritual lesson to his apostles and he says, Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. But it is equally true, on another occasion he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And yes, once again, while the harvest is a work of God the Holy Spirit, nonetheless, God has given you and I a part to play. Both the sowing of the good seed of God's word and the reaping of the harvest, it's hard work. And there are so few who are willing to labor at it. Souls are not won by some slick formula, it's hard work, it's prayer. There's many a night when I would like to be with my family. But I am not because I am out there trying to plead with men to come to Jesus Christ. A good farmer must put his hand to the plow and he cannot look back. Now let me suggest two applications this morning in closing. First, true Christian service is hard work. True Christian service is hard work. The notion that Christian service is hard, sweat, blood, labor is not very popular in this day of feel-good Christianity. In this day that says, make me feel good, entertain me, teach me, feed me, bless me if you can. And so many Christians are not willing to put their hand to the plow and to work hard I've reminded you that this word hardworking means to toil, to strive, to struggle, to become weary, even to the point of exhaustion. And the noun likewise carries the same connotation. And they were both favorite words of the Apostle Paul. And so it's not surprising that he would use this word, not just of spiritual service, but also of manual labor. He said, and we toil working with our own hands, as he described his tent-making ministry. In Ephesians 4, he says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. He told the church at Thessalonica to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Now, in Paul's view, he could use the exact same Greek word in reference to our spiritual service to God. So in Romans 16, he greets the church. He says, greet Mary, who worked hard for you. He also asked them to greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 described himself as laboring, as watching, as hungering, because like our Lord, he very often didn't even have time to eat or to sleep. He told the Colossians, for this purpose, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, I worked harder than any of them. Serving Christ is hard work. And that is so important for us today because there are so many segments of the body of Christ that teach us that the Christian life is simply lived by resting, Not by working, simply by resting. You know, let go and let God mentality. But it is not either or, it is both and. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's resting. That's depending upon the Spirit. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So I want to remind you that the hard work and laboring that is required of Christians is done as we depend upon His grace. Rest and work together. True Christian service is hard work. That's why so many never get involved in the local church. Unwilling to sweat for God. And when you meet Christ, it won't be my fault that you didn't hear of your responsibility because I told you. Second, God can bless hard work. God can bless hard work. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, then you know that the blessing of God rested upon this man's life with exceptional measure. Now, I'm sure there are many explanations Now, I certainly do not want to take away from God's sovereignty and God's providence and working in this man's life. But sometimes I wonder if we forget how Paul cooperated with the grace of God. Sometimes I I wonder if we forget about the zeal and the zest and the vigor and the endless devotion that this man gave to the work of the church. I meet lazy Christians. Oh, bless my ministry in the church. Bless my Sunday school class. Bless this ministry. Bless that ministry. Pastors who say, oh, God, grow my church. But they're lazy. They're not like Paul who gave himself to the work. He did not despise the cost. He fought the fight. He did not... Ignore the wounds that were involved. He toiled. He didn't seek for rest. He labored according to his power that was mightily at work within him. Paul was blessable because like the hard-working farmer, he was willing to work. How would someone describe your Christian life today? Do you sweat for God? Listen, most churches today All they are doing is hiring professionals so you don't have to do anything. So you can come and be entertained and to sit, soak, and sour and do nothing for God and to leave this place feeling good. That is not New Testament Christianity. You are to labor for Christ like an undistracted soldier who at all costs seeks to please the one who enlisted him. You are to labor like a law-abiding athlete if you are ever to win the prize. Go for the gold. Work like a hard-working farmer. Now, if you're a Christian, the Bible is very clear that God has called you to run the race within the confines of a Bible-believing church. And if God has enlisted you as a soldier, then He has called you to be a member of a local church somewhere. He has called you to farm in some local field. You can't do it alone. And in just a moment, we're going to have an invitation and we'll give some of you the opportunity to take that most important step. Others, I fear, are not even in the race because you've never been enlisted by the Master. And He has only one way of enlisting you in this race. And he will sign you up only with his blood when you receive it by faith. I've got good news for you. All the fees involved for this race have been paid for in full. All that's left for some of us to do is to come in faith. Would you do that today? Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to labor over your word this week. Thank you that you've called me to do that. And I thank you that you have privileged me to share it today with your people. Father, my earnest desire is that we reach that goal that you've called us to reach, that we would not quit, that we would be faithful to the end. Help each and every saint here to take an honest look. Help us just to go back at our last week and to evaluate whether we we're really even running well in the race, as a hardworking farmer, as a dedicated soldier, as a law-abiding athlete. Father, I pray today for someone who is here who's never been saved. We have spoken this morning about service, but I thank you for salvation paid at the blood cost of your son. Help someone today to come in faith, understanding that the one who died on Golgotha took upon himself all of their sin, all of its wrath, and then you raise them from the dead, that whoever will call upon his name today can be saved. Help men and women and boys and girls to do that which they will be glad they did when they meet Christ. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen.
1: To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, Or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program 2TM3 entitled Laboring for Christ. It's part of our study in the book of 2 Timothy and we'd like to offer the entire study in 2 Timothy as our gift to any new foundation partners. Foundation partners help support this ministry with a monthly gift of at least $25. Find out more by contacting us at 877-787-7478 or by visiting our website, searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow, Pastor Berge begins a new message out of 2 Timothy. Join us then when we search the Scriptures.